I remember there was like, I don't know, a point where in my childhood I was very ashamed of the fact that I speak another language that isn't English. And obviously now I kind of use use that in my work quite a lot. But like, yeah, there was definitely like a learning of shame and then later on an attempt to unlearn. Welcome to I Am An Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon, one of the approximately 9 million foreign-born people living here. I left Australia around 15 years ago to study in the UK. One thing led to another, and I stayed. This new season of the podcast has been commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival. I'll be speaking with some of the artists whose work is programmed this year, and who also happen to be, you guessed it, immigrants. On this first episode of Season 2, I chat with Mandela Ray, whose show As British as a Watermelon will play at the Edinburgh International Festival from August 23 to 26. Mandela is a writer, performer and occasional curator whose early life was spent in Zimbabwe and South Africa and who arrived in the UK aged seven. They now live in Manchester. We talked about saying hello to strangers, feeling out of place and using watermelons to express rage. My name is Mandla and I am an immigrant. Hi Mandla, you chose your name didn't you? Yeah I did. When I was born in Zimbabwe I was given the name Bridget which felt a little bit strange. I don't know I like my family never really called me Bridget I was always given like other nicknames. There's a weird one that's quite common um in southern Africa of like Pinky which is like one of my nicknames but I've met a few other people who also have the same nickname but it has no connection to that actual name so um I feel like I've just been having an identity crisis my whole life. (laughs) So when, when did you choose Mandla when did that happen? When I was about 21, I chose the name Mandla Ray. And before that, I had chosen the name Dig when I was like 14 because I had never seen any like shortenings of Bridget until there was a character in Neighbours, <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> the Australian TV show called Bridget. And she had everyone call her Dig. And I was like, I guess that's a shortening of the name. That'll do. Yeah. And so for a long time, I was Dig. And then when I was about 21, I was Mandla Ray. But then it was Ray because I was worried that people wouldn't be able to say Mandla properly. Um, so for a long time, I was Ray. And then like in the past couple of years, I've been like, no, it's Mandla, actually. So you are a writer, a performer, and I think you said occasional curator. And you live in Manchester. How long have you lived there now? I've lived in Manchester for about six years now, yeah, which... Ah, okay, so you're proper there, you're properly Mancunian. What do you appreciate about Manchester? What's the thing you like, you appreciate Um, most? There's so many things, actually, like, I love being close to, like, the Peak District and, like, Yorkshire Dales and all the nature and stuff like that. I love the community with, like, artists and just, like, in the general, like, where I live, I don't know, like, I don't know, you just, like, say hi to people that you don't know, and I love it, like... That's so just, nice! I don't know, yeah, yeah, it has a very friendly um vibe I can walk into town from where I live when I'm not injured I'm currently injured so I can't do that what happened um I had a bad fall and um yeah torn a couple of ligaments and it's yeah not ideal oh god ideal in your leg or is it is it a leg injury 
In your knee? Oh, God, that's even worse. Oh. Was it just an accident? You fell off something or...? Um, yeah, it was during a rehearsal for a dance show that I was in. I fell off the stage and... Oh, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to your origins then. You mm. were born in Zimbabwe. What part of Zimbabwe did you did you grow up in? Well, start to grow up in anyway. <laughs> um, so I was born in Bulawayo and we lived there for a little bit, but I don't actually have, I guess, like very many memories of being there because we moved to South Africa when I was about two. Obviously, when you look at Zimbabwe and the economic state, there are a lot of people who, yeah, kind of leave and find opportunities where they don't have many. And yeah, that's conversations I've had with my dad. Uh, what do you What do you picture when you think about South Africa? Lots of joy. I remember being surrounded by like, I don't know, lots of other kids playing, um, running around, getting into trouble. I remember, I don't know, lots of sugarcane fields. I'm not sh- sure whereabouts in South Africa that was. I don't know if it would have been the city, but um, yeah, I remember like having animals around like chickens and goats and stuff. Yeah, so it was a difficult transition for you going from what seemed like quite a nice childhood in South Africa to a very different scenario in the UK? Yeah, being kind of picked out of your life and put somewhere else and there's not really many familiar things or people um, and the language is different and suddenly your skin becomes wrong and um, I remember, um, I don't know, a point where in my childhood I was very ashamed of the fact that I speak another language that isn't English and obviously now I kind of use use that in my work quite a lot but like yeah there was definitely like a learning of shame and then later on an attempt to unlearn that shame obviously. Okay even in London that was um a shameful thing you would because I mean I, I just associate London schools with hugely diverse populations. Yeah I grew up in like zone five a lot of people would be like it's not really London <laughs> um you know there was London postcode lottery it wasn't a very diverse community in that sense um Sutton there was diversity but there was still like a majority white people um yeah I still remember learning the n-word that's used against um black people as a slur um I learned that in primary school from like someone calling me it and everyone around me kind of being like oh my god you can't say that and I didn't know what it meant I'd never heard it before my family didn't really you know say that and so I kind of like yeah I had to have (laughs) the white children around me explain to me what this word was why it was wrong and what it means people don't like you because you're black and that's a thing and so your school life sounded like it was a struggle in some respects like you you had to do a lot of adapting a lot of just figuring out how to be in this place yeah definitely I've well I thought I was quite lucky that in secondary school I had like a really lovely group of friends yeah I don't know holding me through what was quite a difficult childhood both in terms of like difficulties with my grandmother and also difficulties at school I was um an emo growing up I was very into rock music and wearing black and all sorts of stuff like that um and there is a kind of like idea that 
I shouldn't be because I was black and I'll never forget this. There was um, a white girl at my school who looked at me and told me that I was a disgrace to my race because I guess, I don't know, I wasn't engaging in black culture (laughs) or something. I don't know. Or what's perceived to be black culture. Um, And like, yeah, I don't know. It was kind of like just seen as a bit odd and not quite right and didn't really fit in. Yeah, I was really good friends with the librarian, though. She made, um, she'd always recommend lots of books to me, and that was always a safe space I could just kind of go. Um, it was quite violent. There was, like, happy slapping, and people would just slap me, and at one point someone decided I had a big forehead, and they'd all play a game where they'd see who could, like, slap my forehead. And, yeah, there was lots of violence, lots of racism as well. And I remember trying to like complain about like things that were explicitly racist that people had like said to me when it got to like MySpace and you know, social media was becoming a thing. Um, And a lot of teachers was just kind of like, well, they haven't said it or done it on school grounds. So it doesn't really, there's not really anything we can say or do about it. Gosh, that's, I think things have changed now with that type of thing. And, you know, with, with teenagers, but back then, I guess, because it was a new, newish thing, wasn't it, social media, and they probably didn't know the ground rules. But still, you didn't get any support from the school, which is a real shame. But the librarian was nice. And you said you had some friends. You got a group of friends around you in secondary school? Yeah, and we just kind of, I don't know, yeah, be the weird kids together. And, yeah, me and one of my friends would, like, um, hide out from PE classes would just go to the locker rooms and sit there instead of having dodgeballs thrown at us and stuff like that um <laughs> yeah yeah okay <laughs> so your degree was in creative writing English literature and creative writing yeah so what led you to do that degree was it um a very conscious choice this is exactly what I want to study it was between psychology and English lit there were the A-level subjects that I was yeah most excited by and I guess English lit ended up winning because I'd loved it for the longest I only started doing psychology at AS level but yeah I don't know I guess I kind of had a think um and I was just like oh yeah no like this is my whole thing (laughs) like I love books more than anything else and my dad wanted me to study law or medicine that didn't happen that was never going to happen immigrant parents eh? immigrant parents bless them (laughs) so did you have to have a chat with him did he did he accept it in the end or well yeah I kind of so when I applied for university I just sort of like put in English lit and I think he thought or hoped I was going to put in law and then when all the things came back and he had to like sign everything he was just kind of like English and I was just like well I've got the place at university now so we don't have very long um because I got my place through clearing because I'd got my asylum um refugee status like a week or so before like getting my results so it was very like very fine deadline and I was just like oh fuck it I'll just do English let do the thing that I want and deal with my father's rage later <laughs> oh gosh you got in just in time because I've, I've have interviewed quite a few people now who you know have lived here without the kind of indefinite leave to remain for a while and then they get to their university applications and they're like oh oh no this is not working I'm not eligible 
Well, I actually went to university a year later than I should have because I didn't have leave to remain um, and my asylum claim with my family was um, had just been like on hold for so long. So I kind of like stayed in college and did like an extra year. Interestingly enough, I hadn't, in my first year of A-levels, I hadn't chosen English literature because I'd taken a bunch of subjects to kind of make my family happy. And so I ended up moving to Birmingham after my first year of AS levels. And then I was like, right, I'm just going to do English. (laughs) Actually, that's the thing that I actually want to do. And then if I'd been able to go to university the year that I was meant to go to university, my fees would not have been £9,000 because that was the final year. Oh, no. Okay. So you missed that year? Yeah, I missed that year. I don't think of that often at all. (laughs) (laughs) And did you have the same experience of, like, getting to the end of secondary school and then realising, oh, no, I can't actually go to uni yet? Yeah. So you, you spent the next year trying to sort it out? Yeah, so I guess like, yeah, when I was a child, I didn't really um, know very much about what was happening with our immigration status. I kind of like saw and heard snippets here and there. And then, yeah, when I was 18, I kind of put in a claim on my own as opposed to with my family. And I had conversations with the um, lawyers and they were all just, well, you've been here for so long, like you're basically British. We don't see why, you know. And I explained to them that I was um, queer, I was gay, and that became a big main thing as to why you kind of like, you know, you have to explain why you deserve to be here, why you deserve to be protected under asylum laws and stuff. So yeah, I got to stay here on the grounds of yeah being LGBT. Okay, and that you wouldn't be able to return because you would be in danger of persecution in Zimbabwe. Yeah. Were the lawyers helpful? Were they, did you get good advice? Yeah, I did get good advice and good support. And I think like, yeah, so my like claim on its own took about six months from like application to decision, which, you know, after my whole life of literally not having any means to be here was great to finally be able to be like, right, okay, I can get on with my life now and not have this fear because I guess like yeah when you're waiting for asylum status there is that fear of like you can literally be deported um at any point you can go and be like you have to go and report that you're here like every month or every week depending on how often the home office decides you should do that and then you can go and be reporting and suddenly you're in a detention center there's so much anxiety there's so much fear um there's so much that's out of your control and I saw a lot of that and yeah so finally being like okay that isn't necessarily a fear that I have anymore. Hi listeners a little reminder that you can book Mandela's show as British as a watermelon via the Edinburgh International Festival website all the details are in the show notes. We love hearing from listeners so do get in touch via our social channels at Ice and Fire UK And do subscribe and recommend us. It really, really does help. Okay, back to the conversation. I believe it's you get you get five years with refugee status. Is that is that right? And then you're able to apply for indefinite leave. Yeah. And so have you reached that point yet? 
Yes, so I now have indefinite leave to remain. And yeah, I've taken the life in the UK test. It's such a crazy test. It's absurd. Yeah. Becoming a British citizen. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, well, I've taken the test and passed it. Well done. Oh, my God. It's, yeah. Oh, God. It's ridiculous. I did a performance. So like one of like the earliest versions of As British as a Watermelon was actually like a really funny and ridiculous show where I kind of like made a British member of the audience, a white British member of the audience, take the life in the UK test. And then like I staged like a citizenship ceremony with the audience and made them all like do the oath, which is also so funny. And yeah, there was this thing of, yeah, lots of people didn't know the answers to some of the ridiculous questions that come up because they're not logical. Yeah, they're not common knowledge. You know, you have to know all of these ancient people from ancient history, sports celebrities and things like that. It's bizarre. There was a question about like Shakespeare being like, like the best writer or something. And like, technically, the answer was yes because the answer was Shakespeare. But I was like, hmm, I don't think he is the best writer, though. Like, he's a good writer, but what if you don't think Shakespeare is the best writer? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a completely subjective opinion. Anyway, it's done. You've done it. You can now just forget everything that you had to sort of study for. It's crazy, that book. Yeah. So you got your um, refugee status at Six months is actually quite quick in the scheme of things, you know, now now anyway. It's taking people years to get an answer. So you got that at 18. Then you were able to then apply to university and do your degree. Which university was it? I went to Westminster. Oh, in London? Yeah. Did you enjoy that degree? Was that a way to find a new tribe of people? Yeah, definitely. I'm still friends with a lot of people from my class um, and like some of them are going to do a cute little trip to Sheffield when I'm doing my show to come and watch it. Oh, how nice. Yeah, I got, I recently got asked to like come and have a chat with the current like creative writing class about my career and that was definitely a space where I kind of started to find my creative voice I guess and start to figure out some of the things I'm interested in talking about and writing about. Yeah no it's nice university for that isn't it you've got that freedom to kind of go who am I what have I got to say what am I into what am I not into you know I guess being a lawyer and being a doctor has completely gone out of the window now right well I would like to do a PhD so I would like to be like a doctor but not in like the medical sense oh yeah you could be a doctor <laughs> not, not the kind of that would save your life but, no, but you could save you could save someone's life through a book yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, so, so you mentioned that you are queer. Mm-hmm. How was that for you finding that process um, as a young person? It's really interesting. I was quite religious as I grew up as well. So I went to a Seventh-day Adventist church. I don't know if you know very much about the Seventh-day Adventist, but it's not a very... It's not a space where you can feel open to be your best queer self, let's just say. <laughs> Yeah, they're quite um, fundamentalist and there's like, you know, attempts to like pray off any things that might be unpleasing to you. Um, Yeah, like I remember when I was like 17, 
I gave myself an undercut, um, you know, like the shaved side of my head. <laughs> and a deaconess pulled me into this little Bible study room and was just like, what have you done to your hair? We don't like it. It's not a Christian haircut. You need to grow it back. This is unacceptable. There are Christian haircuts. Um, <laughs> There are Christian haircuts and I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, and like I definitely and like um later on I had a, a good friend of mine from church who kind of told me that at the time like her mum didn't like her spending time with me because her mum thought that I was a lesbian, which, you know, I hadn't confided that to her mum, but I find it interesting that adults were gossiping about a child. Yeah, so I, I don't know, I think like in the context of being around um, the church, I was kind of like, those kinds of feelings that I had, I kind of always assumed that they would just disappear at a certain point and I'd just like find a man and be a wife and have children and, you know, because that's what Jesus wants you to do and therefore that's what you do. Not everyone has to act on feelings that they feel about who they are, right? So um, it was a bit of a struggle, obviously, internally yeah. um, for you, uh, <laughs> going, I feel this way, but I can't feel this way. And and how did you kind of work through that? The group of friends that I mentioned, I guess like as we got a little bit older, my best friend, he came out to me and my other friend, like I don't know, I had quite a few guys came out as gay, but never anyone who wasn't a guy so much. And there was a lot of like homophobia presented to those who came out, obviously. But yeah, I don't know, I never really felt like that was a space where I could also be myself either but within like the friendship group I had I came out um when I was like I don't know like 15 16 to them okay Um, that's good so you could sort of you could be open you could be open somewhere yeah yeah and that really yeah like I have um a line in as British as a watermelon that's like I was my own mother and father and I recently have been finding that line quite difficult to say because one of those friends that was the first person that I ever told actually passed away recently and it feels like oh yeah I'm lying like I didn't raise myself these wonderful like queer people kind of picked me up and made it okay for me to be myself um were a part of that um as you say I mean it's this is your personal life that's on stage. That must have been quite a decision for you to kind of make that step. Yeah, I think like um, a lot of people didn't, like when I started having to study for the life in the UK test, for example, a lot of people in my life were kind of like, oh, I just thought you were British, right? Because look at you, look at how you sound, like, what do you mean? And so, yeah, there was something as well about me then being like, oh, I've managed to kind of like lie or like not even even if I haven't told people I'm British, I've just hidden, yeah, this part of myself. And I think there's a lot of stigma and a lot of ideas about people with refugee status and asylum seekers and who they are and what they look like. And as I was growing as an artist and becoming someone who has a platform, I don't know, it felt important for me to then be like, by the way, this is also who I am because there is no difference between someone seeking asylum and someone who is who you consider to be a person, a part of this country, whatever that means. I felt like if I continue to hide that, then I'm just kind of adding to the stigma and the shame in some kind of way. But me saying that hopefully breaks some of that stigma that's attached 
Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about As British as a Watermelon and uh, what audiences should expect. It's it's very messy, quite chaotic, plays with the senses quite a lot. It's me talking, destroying watermelons, telling stories, singing like little folk songs and hymns. What are some of the reactions you've had? Oh God, I don't know. I've, I've had like such an interesting response to it. Someone watched it and told me that after it, they went and had conversations with their friends about how to say their name correctly. Um, because they'd just been allowing people to mispronounce their name and not been correcting them. I talk about being Mandela Ray, but then being Ray, and then my actual surname, I never say it in the public. It's never been a part of my artist name because people say it so wrong and it frustrates me (laughs) so much. Um, And I've just kind of been like, maybe it's just... I don't know, the English language can't make certain sounds and that's okay. But also it's not okay because I'm just wiping away a part of myself in order for other people to be comfortable. Yeah, so I thought that was really beautiful and really powerful that someone was like, no, I will have those conversations. And what are some of the other reactions you've had? Have you had any where you've been like, oh, you didn't get it? Or Yeah, <laughs> or, oh God, um, there was... Well, this was in a review, but someone said that it's not very much about migration. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because I think it's all about being like the experience of being someone who is an immigrant. I don't know, like, yeah, lots of people who connect with it on a really personal level as well are people who are immigrants and not necessarily just people who are from Zimbabwe or South Africa. I've noticed a lot of Muslim women from South Asian countries really connect with the work. So that was interesting. I had in an earlier work in progress performance in Blackpool, I had a member of the audience say that it made them feel like shit for being white, which I thought was interesting because I don't really think it's about that. Yeah, yeah. You put something out into the world and depending on where people are at in their lives or what book they read last week, or they're going to take different things from it. Yeah. In essence, it's a story about becoming who you are today, um, coming here and, you know, the process. Yeah, of- so, like, when I started, like, writing the scripts, I had quite a lot of, like, sad stories <laughs> about my, like, childhood and my life. And so I kind of was like, okay, so whatever I'm doing as I'm telling these stories has to be something that is a soothing or, like, takes away the attention from the emotion of the words that I'm saying because... I don't want to connect to the emotion of what I'm talking about in the show because I think that if I did connect to it emotionally, I wouldn't be able to do the show. So it's a script as opposed to like my life. And I don't know, I've seen like solo shows where like people are talking about difficult things in their lives and they get really emotional and they like cry as part of the show. But I guess like I'm not an actor as well. And so for me... I know that if I was to be crying, they would be real tears and I don't particularly want to give the audience that. (laughs) Yeah, Um, so the watermelons are kind of a way to channel whatever emotion might be there, but also as a counterpoint to the text and the material, I guess. Yeah, and a way to kind of express my rage over the things I'm talking about as well. Take it out on fruit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Does it feel lonely to be up there on your own or does it feel right? 
I think it feels right. And I guess I don't feel super alone because I'm kind of like in a dialogue with the audience in a way. Like I've written little bits where like I'm like, oh, I hope they laugh and then they do. And it's like, oh, yay. Like, I don't know, you're listening to what I'm saying. We're connecting. Yeah, I'm fully aware that it's a performance, but the way the audience engage with me, like when I like hold a watermelon up, um, people kind of like do a little like um, things. They think I'm going to like throw it at them or something. And then I actually like roll it under my legs. It's like, yeah. like And I ask questions as well. And usually people don't answer them. But one time I like asked a question about, I think it's like a BCG injection I had when I was younger and I've got like a pretty visible scar from it. And I asked the audience, like, have you got one? Oh, those sort of tetanus scars. Yeah, yeah, I've got one. And someone like was like, yeah, yeah, I've got one. And I was like, oh my God, yes. Usually people don't reply, but like, I love. Very British about it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And it was, yeah, it was an African person who replied. Um, I kind of hope that like one day, like the first thing I say is hello in my language. No one replies. And then I kind of go, for those of you who don't know, that means hello. But I really do hope that someone one day will just be like, hey. (laughs) when I say it um, and say it back yeah yeah (laughs) well Mandla thank you very much I hope your knee continues to improve and um been lovely lovely having you on have a great tour thank you so much for having me Christine this has been really great all right see you soon bye Huge thanks to Mandler for that conversation. Do check out As British As A Watermelon at the festival. And if you can't be there, follow Mandler on Instagram and keep up to date with their work. You have been listening to I Am An Immigrant, an Ice and Fire theatre production specially commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival. It is produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next time. Mm.